Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. we got a great show for you. We're going to jump right in to the protests that have erupted across the United States from coast to coast, north to south, in reaction to the death of George Floyd, the African-American man who was killed under the knee of a white police officer in Minneapolis last Monday. We saw a protest erupt from New York to L.A., from Miami to Seattle. We also saw a lot of mayhem, fires looting it has just been wild night after night and it was another wild one last night let's go right now to seattle and speak to jonathan cho is the very fine reporter for como news in seattle jonathan thanks for jumping on here hey no worries man how's everything over there it's going good jonathan what was it like last night on the streets of seattle well it was day two of uh more protests um look this all started uh, a few days ago with organizers, uh, community activists, pastors calling for a peaceful protest. Uh, as we know, it, it was all about George Floyd right. and police brutality and, and simply just expressing frustration, prayers. Then it just devolved. In, in 24 hours, you had other protesters coming in with different agendas. You had anarchists. You had uh, people just uh, jumping in to be violent. Then the looting started, and the fires, and the destruction, and the vandalism, and it just spun out of control from there. What was it like in Seattle? Did Seattle get hit very badly last night? Yeah, you know, it's crazy. Uh, I've only been reporting now in Seattle for about two months, but my colleagues have said, uh, you know, ever since uh, the WTO protest in the late 90s, um, other protests that they've covered, this is the worst that they've ever seen. Yeah. in Seattle's history. It, it's really because of the destruction and looting, the iconic downtown stores, uh, the brand names of the big stores that we all know, uh, just completely destroyed people. You know, going in there, I saw somebody taking a metal pole and ramming it into a storefront, and then 20, 30 people running in and running out with, with winter parkas, $1,000 parkas. And at this wow. point, um, you know, those are just, you know, things, objects. Um, but, but thank God, no no reports of any... Uh, deaths. I think that's the bottom line here. Despite all the destruction and chaos and, and some injuries uh, as well, we have not uh, been reporting any deaths, and that's the key. Speaking of Jonathan Cho, he's a reporter with Como News in Seattle. Uh, the, just taking a look at the reporting that you did last night, Jonathan, are the police the police outnumbered, or is it kind of like a cat-and-mouse game with these, with these vandals? They sort of go from store-to-store, store, block-to-block, and stay a, a step ahead of the police? Yeah, it really, uh, it, it's been very strategic, and it's really been from the top. Uh, our mayor, uh, Jenny Durkin, she pretty much came out and said there would, there would be a curfew implemented. But at the same time, uh, here in Seattle, it's all about, again, warning people, giving them opportunities to respond appropriately. And because these Seattle police officers have uh, just been used to this type of behavior, these protests, uh, they have a very measured response and strategic tactical response. And what I was covering personally yesterday, one of several protests that were happening in conjunction 
throughout the city, I saw about a thousand marchers. I was following a thousand marchers for several hours, and the officers would not allow these marchers to head to the really important buildings that could, uh, you know, see, you know, potential destruction. For example, uh, the police headquarters, they weren't allowed to go there. So instead, they were all streamlined into one street. And if it got out of control, if there were some splinter groups, they, were, they would all be sort of herded, forced onto one street and just being forced to continue to march. And last night, the key was to not allow the marchers and protesters back into the downtown Seattle area, uh, area after uh, sundown. And, uh, you know, that's what they were trying to do the entire day. And overall, they were successful. Towards the end of the day, though, as they start to realize the marchers are tiring out as, you know, the pack grew thinner and thinner, they did allow several hundred marchers to go into the downtown Seattle shopping district, Westlake Center, where sort of this all started, share their final thoughts and words, and then it dispersed from there peacefully. Is this, is this frustrating, Jonathan, when you talk to some of the legitimate protesters who were upset about the, the death of George Floyd to see this kind of mayhem, fires, looting, and destruction going on at the same time, that, which kind of takes away from, from their message? Were you picking up any, any frustration from the legitimate protesters in Seattle? Yeah, and they were coming out front and center, you know, on television next to the mayor, next to the police chief. Uh, first of all, distancing themselves from these protesters, saying these are not protesters. These are just vandals now. These are criminals. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, they wanted to get back on message, and it was all about George Floyd. It was about social justice. It was about all the reform, the police form that they've been calling for, and years and years of frustration now just boiling up. But again, today, uh, in, in the next few hours, I'm going back out onto the streets because we're expecting potentially more gatherings, maybe more marches, but there are going to be a lot more prayer vigils. What I've seen, at least in Seattle, uh, that I have personally not seen before, is you have a lot of churches now stepping in saying, we have to pray for the city. So we're hoping for a, a peaceful day. We're, we're hoping that, you know, this eventually comes to uh, some type of conclusion. Right. How are the, are the, the police able to manage all this or are they called for backup? You got the, they have the National Guard deployed there in Seattle at all? Oh, the, the National Guard is definitely here. Um, yeah. yeah, that, that happened yesterday. Uh, the officers, uh, you know, they're doing the best that they can, but I think they're outnumbered at this yeah. point. And on top of that, what we're seeing, I mean, the, what you're seeing, you know, outside of Seattle, what you're hearing is just, again, Seattle, Seattle, Seattle. But there are now some affluent suburbs like a Bellevue that was trending on Twitter yesterday. I mean, this is like the second home to Amazon, you know, Google and you have Facebook, Alibaba presence. It is upper middle class, majority white and Asian. This is an area you just don't see this type of stuff. And even Bellevue just exists loaded in looting and rioting. I was called to breaking wow. news in another suburb right outside of Seattle called Tukwila. The Targets and the Walmarts being looted. The, uh, another community rented. I mean, this was happening in conjunction. And, you know, law enforcement throughout the state, just all night, they're trying to put out fires, curfews um, in place. And today, uh, again, uh, we're getting updates. It, it's going to be a day of cleanup. And the signs that there is hope, the signs that there will be a recovery is that you have hundreds of volunteers now in the community coming on saying, how can I help? What right. can I do to help clean up? Where can I donate? What else do I need to do to, you know, be a part of this conversation to bring positive change? So it's definitely 
gotten the attention of this community. Is, is there any evidence, Jonathan, from what you've seen that there's a lot of out-of-town adjutants that are coming in from outside the city of Seattle? You mentioned all the various groups, the, the anarchists, uh, people who've got different agendas. Are people coming into the city from outside of Seattle to cause some of this mayhem? Yeah, the mayor has already said that and believes that's the, that's the case. Um, and also based on the uh, jail laws right now, more than 100 arrests in, in Seattle alone. But we can't tell right now, at least. We're working on it, but we can't tell where all these people are from, whether or not they're Seattleites or they're from out of town. But the mayor, again, you know, is saying most likely many of these people are from out of town or, you know, again, they're not part of the peaceful protest. Their intention never was to peacefully protest. Right. It was to co-opt and hijack this protest and continue their own plans for mayhem. And that's what happened here. Last question for you, Jonathan, because I know you've got to get back to work. Are, are you bracing for more tonight? What is the mood there in Seattle? Uh, I think everyone is just still in shock. They, they, Of course, at this point, they, they can't take anything for granted. Uh, law enforcement agencies are, are preparing for the worst, of course, but hoping for the best. Um, the sun is out here in Seattle. It is bright. It is a beautiful day. It looks hopeful out there, but we'll see. Again, as I said, there are definitely, uh, you know, prayer vigils, several yeah. gatherings already planned. What those will turn into, we'll have to wait and see. Jonathan, awesome job. Thank you for coming on. Hey, take care, guys. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the crisis in Canada's long-term care homes now, particularly acute in provinces like Ontario and Quebec. And a lot of this has been put into very sharp focus with the recent release of that shocking report on conditions in Ontario care homes that was put together by the Canadian military. Remember that the Justin Trudeau government uh, sent some Canadian soldiers in to stabilize some of these care homes in Ontario and in Quebec, and what the soldiers saw when they got there absolutely shocked them. It was worse than some of the things they see in the battlefield. The report that they put out described brutal conditions in, in some of these homes with infestations of cockroaches and residents not being ca- properly cared for or fed, residents with positive for COVID-19 allowed to wander around some of these care homes. It was absolutely horrific reading sending shockwaves across the country now and calls for reforms of the long-term care home system across Canada. Have a listen to this here now. Here is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau the other day reacting to that report. On reading the deeply disturbing report, I had obviously a range of emotions of uh, anger, of sadness, of of frustration, um, of grief. Um, It is extremely troubling, Uh, and uh, as I've said from the very beginning of this, uh, we need to do a better job of supporting our seniors in long-term care uh, right across the country through this pandemic and beyond. All right, Justin Trudeau there saying Canada has to do a better job on long-term care. He's had a meeting the other night with Canada's provincial premiers, and he's asking for the premiers to come to him and ask, tell the federal government, what the provinces need to stabilize and improve these long-term care homes. Don't don't forget, this is largely provincial jurisdiction. Let's talk about British Columbia care homes now with my guest, Isabel McKenzie. She is British Columbia's independent advocate for seniors, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, thanks for coming on. 
My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Michael. Yeah, you bet. And what did you think about that report that came out from the Canadian military on uh, those care homes in Ontario? What did you when you read that and you read some of the coverage of it? What went through your mind? Well, it's very distressing, and I think you heard the words of the Prime Minister also very disturbing about what was happening in these care homes. I think we need to remember that, by definition, we sent the military into these care homes because there was a problem. They are um, hopefully the worst of what we are seeing out there, but uh, it is certainly very, very distressing to read the dispatches and the level of um, neglect that appears to be happening in these care homes. Right. When you, Some of the descriptions in this report were very graphic and troubling with infestations of cockroaches and, and residents sitting around in soiled diapers, residents being force-fed. To your knowledge, is there anything that bad in British Columbia or is this more of an Ontario problem? Well, certainly we hope it's not that bad in British Columbia, and we do have issues here in BC. I do not think they are uh, as acute as they are in Ontario and Quebec for a whole host of reasons. Ontario has a much more fragmented healthcare system than we have in British Columbia, so we've got our uh, a tighter system here with our five regional health authorities. We have more newer uh, care homes in B.C. than they do in Ontario. So, for example, many more, about 75, 78% are single rooms here in B.C. That's not the case in Ontario, and that has, I think, exacerbated uh, some of their COVID issues in Ontario. And certainly when we look at the COVID numbers, um, we're at, we are very clearly experiencing it differently in B.C. than they are in Ontario and Quebec overall. And we're also experiencing it differently in our, in our care homes here in B.C. than they are right. in Ontario and Quebec. Right. Speaking to Isabel McKenzie, B.C.'s independent advocate for seniors, do you, do you think the long-term care system is broken in the country? Or how would you describe it? Well, I'm not sure if I would say broken, particularly as it comes to to BC, but there are problems and issues, Mike. There's no doubt that um, when I read of some of the things that the uh, CAF found in those care homes, you could there are issues around staffing levels and the training of staff and um, the equipment in some of our care homes here in BC. So you certainly we have uh, challenges, and I think that the fixing of those challenges is a long road. We didn't, we didn't get to where we are overnight, and we're not going to fix it overnight. And part of the challenge, Mike, and this is where the silver lining of the pandemic perhaps lies, is that the Canadian public has said, this is not, we won't put up with this, this isn't good enough, because fixing it is going to cost some more money, and there's no silver uh, coating of that. and it's going to come down to what we pay in taxes or what some people pay in user fees or a combination of the both. But um, certainly um, we do need to pay more attention to um, the level of care and support in our care homes. Speaking of the pandemic, when we take a look at the fatalities from this virus across Canada, we see that 80% of the deaths have been in care homes in the country do you think we've seen a lot of deaths in care homes in british columbia as well do you think that 
authorities are doing enough here, at least in the short term? Like, I take your point that this there's not an overnight fix here, but at least in the short term, as we deal with this virus, do you think enough is being done to protect seniors in these facilities? I think in terms of the COVID response, Mike, I think um, we're, uh, we've got the, the orders in place and the plans in place, and we enact, we, we moved on it very quickly here to ensure that uh, we keep COVID out and that if it gets in, um, it doesn't spread. And I think when you look at, I think it is something in the neighbourhood of about 90%, 88, 89% of our care homes have had no outbreak. Um, We've had none on the island, none in northern, really none in the interior. Um, I think the what happened in BC was, uh, for better or for worse, we had the first care home outbreak in the country, in Canada, or in BC, pardon me. And that particular care home, what I think is critical to understand is, I think the outbreak was confirmed on something like a Thursday night. By Friday, Vancouver Coastal Public Health officials were on site, and on Saturday, they were meeting with the family members. So our public health team, it was a a private care home that this happened in, but our public health team got in there on day one, and for want of a better term, seized control of the situation. And I think given what they saw, they could understand immediately how they were going to have to respond in every instance or things were really going to get out of control. And that led to decisions around uh, working from a single site. It led to decisions around, you know, this SWAT team approach when an outbreak is declared. It led to lowering the threshold for a declared outbreak to one case. In normal circumstances, two cases, one laboratory confirmed, are required for the declaration of an outbreak. We lowered that threshold. That was critical. And we looked at the staff, which is also critical, as the vectors of transmission. And because we did all of that so early on, um, I think that that is what has allowed us to not see the kind of things we're seeing in Ontario and Quebec. Because don't forget, Mike, by the time the officials are getting into these care homes in Ontario and Quebec, it's days and weeks later. And so things have deteriorated. We're getting in there right at the beginning and not allowing them to deteriorate. There are calls in Canada now for a massive overhaul of this system, including demands that these care homes be effectively nationalized and taken over by the government and transferred exclusively into the into the public sector. Um, do you think you've written reports about about care homes in British Columbia, including one in, in February on care home accountability? And I, I recall one of your findings was that the pay for the people who work in these in private homes were were was significantly less than employees were paid in public facilities. And I know the government has moved to top up the wages of of workers in these care homes. But do you think that there's a fundamental problem between public and private care homes in BC? Well, I'm not sure whether the issue is who actually owns it uh, and operates it versus the um, how we're monitoring and the incentives we're putting in place in the contracts we hold with the private operators. Moving to a system of nationalizing, for want of a better term, all care homes, um, I'm not sure that fundamentally solves the problem. I think um, it may be... Uh, a solution, I don't know. But I think in the short term, there are things we can do 
and arguably have actually started to do in BC in response to the pandemic, such as um, ensuring all care staff are paid the same and paid a good, uh, decent wage so that you can attract a workforce that will stick with the profession, um, that will stick with one care home. And we know that that will build in and of itself better quality. And I think the, the question out there is, how do you get the um, regulatory monitoring, enforcement, incentive schemes in place to, a, to achieve that? Um, I think we need to do more work on that. I don't think we're where we need to be. Um, I think this issue about putting it under the Canada Health Act is interesting. Um, I don't I don't know enough of all of the ins and outs of that to have a, an opinion on whether that's a good or a bad thing, but I think it is certainly worthy of a discussion. All right, welcome back. It's the first of the month, June 1st, uh, so a lot of businesses are facing the rent, paying the rent today. I wonder how many small businesses are struggling uh, to do that today. Also very significant in British Columbia today is the day that the minimum wage goes up to $14.60 an hour. Now it was $13.85, so that's a $0.75 cent per hour jump in the minimum wage kicking in today. That is a 5.4% increase in the minimum wage. That's what, about twice the rate of inflation. How does that impact employers in our province let's check in now with laura jones she is the executive vice president and chief strategic officer for the canadian federation of independent business they represent small business all across canada laura thanks thanks for coming on once again oh thanks for having me well first of all let's talk about how small business is weathering this pandemic and the and this recession i know you've got you very closely track things like bankruptcy rates and i think you've got some new stats on that what's the latest yeah, so um, we did a survey over the weekend and we found that 12% of business owners are now considering bankruptcy or winding down their business with another 22% saying they're not sure, like they're kind of thinking about it, but 12% said, yes, we are considering bankruptcy or winding down the business. So that's obviously wow. a huge con- concern for all Canadians because, you know, small businesses are a huge part of the Canadian economy contributing, you know, the, oh. over half of the private sector jobs under normal circumstances. Sure. The backbone of the economy, for sure. That's a troubling number there. But did that surprise you or was that anticipated? No, I think, I mean, unfortunately, the, you know, the, the sentiment on Main Street is just right now is just, it's just very, things are very, very stressful. And there's a long, long list of concerns that people have. We asked one question every week, what worries you most about COVID-19? And only 1% are saying there's no concerns, no COVID-related concerns right now. And the top concerns are all financial. They're worried about consumer spending being reduced, about the economic repercussions on the, you know, on the overall economy, business cash flow, debt. Um, These are all, you know, serious concerns for, for most business owners across the country right now. When you take a look at across the spectrum of small business in British Columbia and Canada, are there any particular sectors of business or the economy that are getting walloped harder here? I mean, you know, we often hear about restaurants and the tourism business and how bad they've been hurt. Are, are those the people that are struggling the most? 
Yeah, so there's hospitality is definitely, you're looking at sectors that, you know, when we say 12% are saying, yes, we're looking at bankruptcy or winding down. In hospitality, it's almost double that. Um, and so you've got 20%. Um, arts, recreation, businesses, um, they've also been very hard hit, 22%, saying they're, they're thinking about, you know, um, winding down their businesses. Um, so those are all above average social services businesses as well, um, 16%. So you've got some sectors that we know have been very, very hard hit. You know, think about your restaurants, your hairdressers, uh, your nail salons, um, your dance studios. These are businesses that have been very, very hard hit by COVID. Okay, that's re- that's really troubling situation that we're, businesses are facing. It's It's the 1st of June today, so it's time to pay the landlord. The rent is due. Are you hearing from a lot of small businesses who are struggling to pay the rent? Yeah, rent relief is still a mess that needs a major cleanup. So there is a program in place, the SECRA program, and it does look like it will help some landlords and tenants, um, but it's still got a lot of problems. Uh, one of them is that many landlords don't want to use the program, um, not helped by the fact that we're hearing that the administrative challenges with it are are serious. You know, we had talked to one landlord who was on the phone with for, with CMHC for four hours Um so waiting for, you know, verification of login information and that kind of thing. So a lot of it's a very, very bumpy road, um, the launch of that uh, program. Forms are difficult to understand. Um, some of the ways in which they're doing it, you know, you have to say that you're down for your April, May and June re- um, revenue by 70 percent. But June is still a big question mark for people. So there are things about the program that are just difficult to navigate. And then the final challenge with the program is, of course, a 70% um, revenue loss is a very, very high bar. You can be seriously struggling with a lot um, lower revenue losses than 70%, and then you don't have any any help available. So three months in, Mike, and it's still, I would say, that the rent relief is a mess that needs a major cleanup. Right. Okay. That's interesting. The C- the CRA program, as you as you called it there, the acronym there, that's the Canada Emergency Commercial Rent Assistance Program. Yes, for, part of the for small business. Soup, uh, yeah, the, al- <laughs> the alphabet soup of programs. Yeah, that's a yeah. good way to good way to put it. How so? How does this basically work? So, if your business, if you're a small business, and your revenue is down. 70 70 man that is a high bar i mean they've been it's practically you've been practically decimated 70 percent you'd be teetering on bankruptcy um so then you can apply for is it 75 percent of your rent gets covered how do, or how does it work yeah basically 75 percent of your rent gets covered you pay 25 percent, and then the idea is the government will pay 50 percent, and the landlord will pay 25 percent. um right. which in theory sounds great and i think a lot of people in theory support the idea but in practice it's proving to be quite challenging because the landlord is the one that has to apply as a tenant if your landlord doesn't apply for the program you're just out of luck right now Okay, it's another one where these where the landlord has to apply and not the tenant. It's similar to the uh, to, to the basic tenant relief that we have in BC. And I've I've heard from a lot of tenants who are struggling, but their landlord is not applied. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's a it's a challenging situation, and you know it's it's again, you know, one could 
say, well, what's wrong with the landlord for not applying? But there right. are some good reasons that, you know, the administration of this program is looking to be very challenging, but also a 25% hit. I mean, how many of us would, would put up our hands for a 25% um, wage reduction? It's, it's, a bit, it's a bit tough when you still have bills to pay yourself. So it's, you know, a lot of landlords are doing it and they're, or they're working out other arrangements, but there are some that are finding it very challenging financially um, and or the administration of it quite, quite difficult. Okay, speaking of Laura Jones, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, how about the minimum wage today, Laura, going up to $14.60 an hour in British Columbia? It was previously thirteen eighty-five. That's a, a 5.4% increase in the minimum wage. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, gosh, look, everybody wants to, to, to pay their employees more, but I just, you know, you got to give your head a shake, Mike. I mean, does anyone think that small businesses can afford any additional costs right now? It's not that they don't want to do it. It's not that they don't think their employees are worth it. But I, I got to say, this is adding to, you know, this is adding cost pressure to uh, a, a, a group of businesses that are just extremely stressed out. And what mm. it's going to mean is potentially a lot fewer um, jobs. Um, available because it, it, you know, in some cases you're just not going to be able to afford to rehire um, at that wage rate. Yeah, I'm wondering too if a minimum wage increase like that disproportionately hits businesses that are already being hammered really hard by the virus. Like, for example, restaurants that will typically pay minimum wage for their staff who rely on tips. So, you know, the yeah. restaurants that are already they've already been beaten down badly by this by this recession and now they get they get hit with this now yeah of course it does and and again you know minimum wage is always a tough one because you know it's it it's not that again it's not that people don't want to pay their employees more but you, you know in some cases you can't afford to like the customer demand isn't there or the customers aren't willing to pay the prices that allow you to pay those those wage increases so it's really really tough and you're absolutely right it's businesses like restaurants that can are are really hurting right now and and some of those restaurants haven't been eligible for some of the programs that um you know their landlord might not be applying for the rent relief program um because of the nature of the business they may not qualify for the um for the business account that has a forgivable portion just because they, they may have a higher payroll than the threshold for that just because it you know you tend to have a lot of staff as a restaurant owner so it's it's really really tough really tough and not a great time to be increasing costs i, I don't think that was a good move 